Well, let's do numbers. And I don't mean the book of numbers, pal. We'll do that one later. I mean numbers. I mean bums on pews. And I mean decline, because voices from the church in the West speak of decline, big structural decline that keeps you up at night if you're any kind of a church leader at all. Um, I've been studying bums on pews for the last 38 years. When I began as a research student, it's all part of becoming the kind of doctor that can't help anybody, I, I, I studied the dynamics of churches in London a hundred years ago, how they grew, who were the human beings, what did they think they were doing there, and what kinds of growth were they? And for 38 years as a pastor rather than an academic, I've been very fascinated by the question of bums on pews. You cannot get away from it, because if you go to a party... And you're a pastor. So, oh, that's lovely. How big's your congregation? Uh, have you ever had this happen to you? It's, it's really rather this. I mean, if you were a doctor, would they be saying, "Well, have you got any patients?" You know, or, or if you were a milkman, would they say, "Well, how many bottles have you got on the van?" You know, it's it's a particular concern that operates at a rather interesting dog whistle level for pastors, and we're fascinated by bums on pews. Now, my first response to the crisis that certainly the Church of England and I think all churches in England have about bums on pews is to say, does it matter? Maybe maybe it's the quality you need, not the quantity. Maybe we can all tell ourselves we've got the real Christians and it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. This is what's called the one, uh, uh, Mark will know this well, it's it's the no true Scotsman fallacy, you know, where you say all the Scots have salt on their porridge because they're Scots. And then somebody pipes up and said, my Uncle Angus in Glasgow doesn't have, he has sugar on his porridge. And you say, ah, but, but no true Scotsman has, <laughs> you know. And, and we do this with church numbers. We kid ourselves in all kinds of elaborate ways about what's going on. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because people matter. If you start saying, it really doesn't matter what people think of this stuff and whether they respond to it, what you're actually saying is, people are irrelevant to my faith. And that's a very common, it's Gnosticism, a very popular religion. It's not Christianity. The word made flesh. Jesus made real. Real people matter. And therefore, inevitably, you have to look at bums on pews. Also, Jesus uh, both wowed and wooed the crowds, actually. The religious establishment, he, he put on the back burner. But certainly, when the crowds flock out to see him and people are healed, that's good news, not bad news. It's not a sign that he's somehow given in to the culture or something. It's a sign that Jesus is different from their scribes and Pharisees. And when you look at how the early churches grew in the book of Acts, there is an astonishing openness to culture. Look at at Paul going to the Areopagus. He, He walks up through a street full of pagan temples, And whereas many of us would say to the Areopagus, well, your problem is, pal, that your religion's crap. You know, if you stop being a pagan and you've got a Christian worldview, then you could be a Christian. And that's exactly what he doesn't do. He says, all these pagan temples, are they interesting? I wonder what you're really, perhaps I can help you understand what that's really about. This is what I feel when I react to it. What do you think? 
And that's a very different kind of evangelism to the kind of imperialism that all of us will have experienced in our Christian lives. This is the man who said, I will be all things, I will become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And it means you can't wrap the thing up in a cultural package and think that that's good enough, because it isn't. Now, if you want to be very good on bums on pews, I've brought with me the boy's own book of bums on pews. Here it is. It was produced in London in 1904. It's called The Religious Life of London, and it is the daily news survey of London churches in October 1904. And it will tell you exactly which bums were on which pews in October 1904. Because when people talk about has the church grown or isn't the church growing, it's very interesting to come back to that datum point. And it's really very discouraging because everybody's gone down. We Anglicans make a great deal of Holy Trinity Brompton and its plants and how wonderful they are and how they're fast-growing churches. When you look at the big book of bums on pews, which I have in my fair hand, it will tell you that the 26 churches involved in the Holy Trinity Brompton network have actually declined by 37% since 1904, lest any should boast. They may feel it's extraordinary from the inside, but actually, by the sheer standard of, of the big book of bums on pews, that's not good enough. I live in a town full of Baptists, Chesham next door. It was beer, it was boots, and it was Baptists, a whole network of chapels and Baptists around there. I came to faith in a Baptist church. It's a wonderful place to be. You know, if you'd stopped somebody in the streets of that town 100 years ago, six out of ten of them would have been what we would call an evangelical Christian of one stripe or another. Um, three would have been Baptists, um, two would have been Anglicans, and others would have been Congregationalists or Independents of one sort or another. If he did the same exercise today, it would be six out of a hundred. Friends, that is decline. So perhaps we can all stop saying, oh, we're growing fast because it feels okay where we are. By the standards of penetration in the population, by what it means, we are not doing well over 120 years, and we might as well bite the bullet and accept the fact, because it's true. Um, the C of E, my own uh, denomination now, uh, if you're part of the age cohort born in 1900, there is a one in two chance of you're saying you're an Anglican. If you're one of the age cohort born in 1985, there is a one in 20 chance of you're saying that you're an Anglican. That is decline. And the decline of faith among young people is particularly conserving um, because when you look at congregations, 84% of people in our churches came to faith before the age of 25. 1% came to faith after the age of 40. So with a growing population, it does matter. And whereas when I was a young person, 8% of the population were involved with evangelical youth groups. It's just around 1% now of young people in those age cohorts. So you've got to be worried. And the rise of people saying no religion, a 1984 generation, it's actually 60% of them saying they have no religion. And you need to take this seriously. It isn't going to go away. And I can go around as a bishop. The lovely thing about being a bishop is the church is always full, you know? I can go around 285 churches in Buckinghamshire and they're always full when I show up. It's quite amazing. But we're being propped up because people are living longer. 
That's all that's going on. And we're fools if we ignore the reality before our eyes. And we had a very big thing. I, I don't know if this was so strong in the free churches. We had this thing called Back to Church Sunday. Let's get you all back to church and you'll see how nice we are really. And those people showed up in our local church and cried and told extremely moving stories of their experience of dropping out of church and wondering whether they had a future with it. It was a thoroughly worthwhile thing to do. But you can't have a Back to Church Sunday if people weren't there in the first place. That's the problem with that strategy. Now, I remember as a pastor hitting the road on church growth in the 1980s when we were terribly keen on this thing called cell church. If we could build up cell churches, they would grow just like Singapore and soon we wouldn't be able to see for all the people who'd be coming to church. And what I have uh, is a model of church growth which I discussed with a pastor in a growing church Uh, in Reading in 1985. He's saying, this is why my church is growing and your church isn't. So I sat down with him and said, well, tell me how your church is growing. How do the figures stack up in your church? He said, it works a bit like this. We have 165 church members of all ages in our congregation. I've done nine funerals in the year. I've buried nine of them, so they're dead and they're off the scene. Fifteen have fallen away or moved away from the church. So we've lost 15 people, 24 people have dropped out of our fellowship in the last year in 1985. We have about 10 in the congregation who are really active evangelists and they bring someone to Jesus every, they go out in the marketplaces, they scour, they really have a gift for evangelism and they're key people in our fellowship. And we have about 60 who are kind of passive evangelists, they're welcoming people. They help people get into cell groups and, 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 and become real about They mentor people into faith. They're not really active. And the rest, frankly, that 70 or 80 people, are basically passengers. They show up because it's in church, but they're not that sort of person. Well, that's a church with 165 members in 1985. That's where it all began. Let's run that model. And if that were true, how would a church like that grow? A bit like this, they're doing very well, aren't they? In fact, they've broken through the thousand by 88. Um, On they go, 92, 93. By 96, they've got the entire population of Reading going to their church. It's doing pretty well. And they've got their first million at the turn of the century. Um, By 2007, you've got the entire population of the United Kingdom going there. I'm going to stop the clock, uh, if I may, if you don't mind, in 2017, because in 2017, the entire population of the planet is going (laughs) to an evangelical church in Reading. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? Now, I realize there are questions about scaling, and there are all sorts of questions. By the way, you may say, how many members has that church got today? I went back and checked earlier this year, 142. So it's been growing fast since 1985, and now it's got 142 members, it had 165. So that's the reality. It's a rather unpalatable reality, but our notions of church growth and what we think is going on is not necessarily what's going on. Now, I think that's extraordinarily important. Not the silly picture, it's a bit of fun, but it's to say that we need to be disciplined to the reality of the world God has called us to live in. 
In an age of branded evangelicalism, a lot of people are shopping between the different brands. But that's transfer growth, and that won't fill up the gaps in the big book of bums on pews, as pleasant as that would be and as easy as that is to do. I would also say, looking at that model from Reading, that, that the saints are better at counting them in than counting them out. You know, uh, the, the key question might be, who are the people who've left our fellowship? How well do we know them? How well do we understand what was going on there? Because we're much better at getting them in than getting them out. Anglicans like to think there are 88 million Anglicans in the world. It's a nice thought if you're in St. Ogg's with four people for a windy evensong. Actually, there is no evidence there are 88 million Anglicans in the world at all. Um, Danny Munoz Trevino from the University of Madrid has tried to measure how many Anglicans are there in the world. And the answer is we do not know because nobody counts. And insofar as they do count, the figures that you get back from Uganda or from Nigeria are precisely as accurate or inaccurate as all the other figures you get back from Nigeria or Uganda. You know, the people who've left you a million quid and, you know, the rest of it. Um, there is absolutely no evidence. And when you actually scrunch something like the church in Uganda, it hasn't got 5 million members. It's got 1.2 million members, insofar as you can estimate that demographic in Uganda using the usual techniques you'd use. Why is the Episcopal Church in the United States declining so fast? Can I tell you the answer? Because they actually count people. Their polity involves having certain numbers that crunch into every diocesan convention. The Church of England doesn't count people accurately. We've just had our diocesan figures for the year, and about 40% of them are guesstimates. The reason tech is declining is it actually counts people. And if we started actually counting people, we might be in for a few shocks, rather than just do it by dead reckoning. So, high anxiety for all of us. What can we do to be saved, say people? Look, maybe there's nothing you should be doing to be saved, okay? Maybe it isn't about you anyway. Let's just raise that possibility before we go further. What can we do? Well, of course, one of the things we do in the Church of England extremely well is nostalgia in this wonderful week. We, we, we sort of Downton Abbey of, of religions, you know? We, we, uh, you know there, there's the butler and you know, all that stuff. It, it makes us feel good. And it may be the population's... Why do people vote for Brexit? Why do they vote for Trump? To make America great again. Again. What an interesting word. There's a lot of nostalgia out there, and the nostalgia trip is good. What can we do to be saved? Well, let's get a heroic leader. Every parish that falls vacant, they want a sort of super vicar to come in and make it all work. But if what you're trying to do is silly, it's not going to work with a super vicar or with anybody else, and this search for the heroic leader. Or we can play management games. You know, we can say, well, if we really organized things so that things look really... The problem with reform and renewal, which is our big program of management games right now, is that it's really a, a package of head office solutions to what are ultimately head office problems. So even if they worked, they wouldn't actually touch what goes on uh, it, on the streets, as much as the people who are putting amazing effort into it think they would. Well, what can we really do to be saved? What should we do? How do we react to this decline? 
Well, as a historian, it's very interesting to look at the historical experience. In the Church of England, for example, in 1832, somebody threw a dead cat at the Archbishop of Canterbury as he was being driven around Canterbury in his coach, and he complained to the head of constabulary and said, can you do something about these people throwing dead cats at me? And the head of constabulary said, well, it's a shame it wasn't a live one, you know? The Church of England was extremely unpopular in 1832 because it invested an enormous amount of spiritual capital in a theology of the Lord's anointed. And the Lord's anointed was George IV. And it didn't matter that he'd sired 32 kids by 11 different women. He was still the Lord's anointed. And resisting parliamentary reform was the Anglican big thing, you know? And it was founded on theology. In the Psalms, you know, give the king your judgment. This was not a light point of view they entered into lightly. They read 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. It was that kind of theology. And he said, because we are a Christian church, we must follow the Bible. We must do what it says in the Psalms and, and give power to the Lord's anointed, not to the rabble outside. And on that basis, they resisted parliamentary reform. They recovered when they got beyond that rubbish and they managed to catch the moral imagination of English people. By the 1860s, they were into public sanitation, they were into education and starting schools, they were into visiting prisons, they were into starting hospitals, and they actually began to get a bit of credibility back because they were doing what people actually needed doing in order to experience liberation and good news from God rather than playing silly mind games about proof texts out of the Psalms and 2 Samuel. When you lose the moral imagination of the people you're working with, you are not able to evangelize because when St. Paul is describing evangelism, look what he says, openly commending our message to the common conscience of all. So if you say, well, pal, your common conscience is wrong, you need our Christian worldview to pass go and then we'll preach to you, You're wasting your time in terms of the kind of evangelism we see. That's in 2 Corinthians 4, you will remember. Openly commending the truth of what we say to the common conscience of all. And one of the reasons we're all screwed up over the gaze, if I may say so, is that we're, we're, we're kind of, we've got this model, it's loads of libertines who want to go sexually wild on the streets. We are actually very often unaware of the moral case for change. But the English are a surprisingly moral lot. And when you tune out of the moral conscience of people, your church will find it very hard to grow in our culture. You have to work confidently within that culture, contributing, not condemning. And one of the big questions of the Church of England about same-sex marriage is that we know that in 2025 there will be between half and three-quarters of a million people in Britain whose primary relationship is a same-sex marriage either as a partner to a same-sex marriage or a child in a same-sex marriage or as a parent of somebody in a same-sex marriage. Actually, if you take that last one in, it's nearer a million people. So the question you need to be asking is, what do we say to these people? We know from the Weddings Project, the Church of England did, how powerful weddings and evangelism can be when they go together. I don't mind what you say, but please have something to say, not we don't do that there here, or we don't think you exist, or we'll net you in and deceive you that we don't care, but we do care really, and we'll get you when you're silly enough to come out from undercover, because that's not good enough.
So that's the first thing we can do uh, to be saved. Second, get our own house in order in the local church. And that's partly about aligning with kingdom values, which include liberation, which include love as strong as death. People sometimes say, oh, you know, the commandments in the book of Numbers. Well, yeah, lots of other commandments too. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. That's actually not rocket science. It's rocket science to do it. But we all know that it's part of the, the Jesus way of life we're called to. And from the Church of England's point of view, that's partly, and I, I say this in all humility as a bishop, but it's partly about sorting out our obsession with hierarchy. We've really got to come back to the Jesus model of church, which is where we are all together in the family of God, and God's the big daddy, not the bishop. Um, I, I learned about this when my iPhone broke, and I found myself having to fix my iPhone screen, and Apple were going to charge me a couple of hundred quid to do it, and the local shoe repairers would do it for 80. Timpsons, interesting. I went to Timpsons and it said, my staff have all the authority they need to give you fantastic service, it said, from John Timpson on the end of it. The Manchester businessman who inherited a shoe shop and turned the whole pyramid upside down. So instead of saying, there's the public, and then there's the staff in the shops, and then there's the management at head office, and then there's the board, and there's me on the top of the pile, why don't we turn that whole triangle upside down? Why don't we put the public on the top of the pile, and we say the people in the shops know what they're talking about more than the managers do, let's put them next on the pile, and then we put the head office people who are simply there to service the people in the shops, and then the board are there to hold the framework and make the thing make sense. Turning the pyramid upside down. Low control, high trust. The amount of control and nonsense about control in church is one of the biggest turnoffs for evangelism in Britain today. People just don't know why we play those silly games, frankly. Or if you want it in Pauline terms, we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord, ourselves, your servants for Jesus' sake. And we need to get with that a bit. We're not the nation's nanny, we're not the nation's schoolmarm. And we're not the only people who know what's true, okay? So we don't give, get, get rid like drowning puppies. Let's just get rid of that and get real. Not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. And finally, we need to ask the right questions. If you go to church council or deacons meetings, what, what are people saying to them? What do they ask? What do we do? You know, there's desperation. Perfectly sensible question but not, I suggest, the key question. What do we do? What have we always done? That's a really good question. Let's just pull out the playbook and see what we did last time and do it again and see whether it, you know, that is, again, we are creatures of habit and that is what we will tend to ask ourselves. Well, what can we do, you know? And that's getting increasingly desperate as congregations shrink and become older across the country. What have we got to do? That's not a bad question because we're all operating in a much more rigid, statutory controlling environment for accounts and safeguarding. What have we got to do is actually a sensible question, but not the key question. It's a good one for a moral organization. What ought we to do? What is right about the issue that faces us? And surely Christian people should be able to ask that question and give an honest answer. What do we want to do? 
because often it comes down to that. Look, all of these are good questions. What do we do? What have we always done? What can we do? What have we got to do? What ought we to do? Look, here's the right question. The right question is, where's the fire? Where's the fire? Can we model a church on energy, not power gaming? And where's the energy in the society we're trying to evangelize? If it's not with our stuff, where is it? And how do we locate ourselves at the place Jesus is, which is the place it's happening on the streets? And because the word has taken flesh, if we get to the place where the fire really is, I believe that is the place you will find the fire of the Spirit. Because he is risen and gone before you. He's in front of us, out there on the streets. And our religious institutions find that difficult to live with. But until we find a way of living with the power that raised Jesus from the dead, being not in our churches, but out there on the streets, we find ways of being good news to people on the streets, then I'm afraid the depressing picture will continue. And if we find a way of skinning that cat, I believe that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Thank you.